Part two, chapter eight of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The rest of the infantry hurriedly marched across the bridge, though they were crowded in the tunnel-like passage at the end. At last all the baggage wagons had crossed, the crush became less, and the last battalion marched upon the bridge. Only the hussars of Denisov's command were left on the end of the bridge toward the enemy. The enemy, though plainly visible from the heights opposite, could not as yet be seen from the level of the bridge, since from the valley, through which flows the ends, the horizon is bounded by an eminence lying about half a verst distant. Directly in front was a plot of wasteland, over which here and there moved bands of Cossack patrols. Suddenly, on the height opposite the road, appeared troops in blue capotes and accompanied by artillery. It was the French. The Cossack patrol came galloping down the road. All the officers and men of Denisov's squadron, although they tried hard to talk of different things and to look in other directions, nevertheless were unable to keep out of their thoughts what was there before them on the hill, and their eyes constantly turned to those patches which were moving against the horizon and which they knew were the troops of the enemy. It was now afternoon, and the weather had cleared. The sun was sinking brilliantly over the Danube, and the forest-clad mountains that walled him in. There was no wind, and occasionally from the hilltop came the sound of bugles and the shouts of the enemy. Between the squadron and the enemy there was now no one except the Cossack patrols. The space between them was only a little more than two thousand feet. The enemy had ceased to fire and all the more distinctly was felt that solemn, ominous gap, unapproachable and inexorable, that divides two hostile armies. One step beyond that line, which is like the bourne that divides the living from the dead, and there is the unknown of suffering and death. And what is there? Who is there? There, beyond that field, beyond that tree, and that roof glittering in the sun. No one knows, and no one wishes to know, and it is terrible to pass across that line, and I know that sooner or later I shall have to cross it, and shall then know what is on that side of the line, just as inevitably as I shall know what is on the other side of death. And yet I am strong, full of life, joy, and exuberant spirits, and surrounded by other men, just as full of health and exuberant spirits. Thus every man feels, even if he does not formulate it in his thought, when he comes in sight of the enemy, and this feeling lends a peculiar vividness and distinctness of impression to everything that occurs at such moments. On the hill where the enemy were arose a puff of smoke, and a cannonball, whistling, flew over the heads of the squadron of hussars. The officers, who had been standing together, scattered to their posts. The hussars began to get their horses into regular line. No one spoke in the ranks. All looked intently at the enemy and at the commander, and awaited the word of command. A second, a third shot flew over them. Evidently, the enemy were firing at the hussars, but the cannonballs, whistling as they flew swiftly by, went far over their heads and fell somewhere in the rear. The hussars did not look up, but each time that they heard the whiz of the ball, the whole squadron, as though by orders, holding their breath until the cannon-shot had passed over, with their monotonously diverse faces, 
raised themselves in their stirrups, and then settled back again. The soldiers, not turning their heads, looked at each other out of the corners of their eyes, each curious to know what impression was produced upon his neighbor. Every face, from Denisov's to the trumpeter's, showed, around the lips and chin, a line denoting internal struggle, excitement, and agitation. The quartermaster frowned, and looked at the men as though he meditated inflicting punishment upon them. The yunker, Miranov, ducked his head each time that the ball flew over. Rostov, posted on the left flank, on his prancing gritchik, had the delighted look of a schoolboy called out before a great audience to pass his examination, in which he believes that he is going to distinguish himself. He looked at every one with a face unclouded and bright, as though asking them to bear him witness that he was perfectly calm under fire. But even in his face, the same line, indicative of something new and solemn, showed itself around his mouth, against his will. "'Who's that making a bow there? You grew me one off. You?' "'It isn't white. Look at me,' cried Denisov, who could not keep still, but kept riding up and down in front of the squadron." Vaska Denisov, with his flat nose and black hair, his little bent figure, his sinewy hand with short, hairy fingers, grasping the hilt of his drawn sword, was just the same as usual, or rather, just the same as he was apt to be in the evening, after he had been drinking a couple of bottles. Only he was a trifle ruddier than ordinary, and, carrying his head very high, like a bird when it is drinking, he pitilessly plunged the spurs into the flanks of his good Bedouin, and galloped back to the other flank of the squadron, and cried out in a hoarse voice his orders that they should examine their pistols. Then he rode off toward Kirsten, the second captain, who came up to meet Denisov, walking his broad and steady-going mare. The captain, with his long moustaches, was as grave as usual, but his eyes flashed with unwanted brilliancy. "'Well, how is it?' said he to Denisov. "'It won't come to a fight.' you'll see, we shall be ordered back. The deuce only knows what they'll do, replied Denisov. Ah, Wustov, he cried to the yonker, noticing his radiant face. Well, now's your chance, and he smiled approvingly, evidently feeling proud of the yonker. Rostov felt perfectly happy. At this moment a high officer appeared on the bridge. Denisov spurred off to meet him. Your Excellency, let us attack him. I will drive them back. Attack them, cried the officer, showing his annoyance in his voice, and frowning as though at a persistent fly. And why are you delaying here? Don't you see the flankers are withdrawing? Order your squadron back. The squadron crossed the bridge and retired beyond the reach of shots, not having lost a single man. Behind them came a second squadron, which had been forming the rear guard, and last of all, the Cossacks crossed to the farther side. The two squadrons of the Pavlograd regiment, crossing the bridge, one after another, galloped up the road. The regimental commander, Karl Bogdanovich Schubert, overtook Denisov's squadron and walked his horse along, not far from Rostov, but without giving him the slightest notice, although it was the first time that they had met since their quarrel about Telyagin. Rostov, who, now that he was in line, realized that he was in the power of the man toward whom he felt guilty, did not take his eyes from the colonel's athletic back, the light hair at the back of his head, and his red neck. Sometimes, 
it seemed to Rostov that Bogdanuitch was merely pretending not to notice him, and that his whole aim now was to try the younker's courage, and he straightened himself up and looked around him gaily. Then, again, it seemed to him that Bogdanuitch rode close to him to display his own courage. Now it occurred to him that his opponent was going to send the squadron into some forlorn hope in order to punish him. And then again it occurred to him that after the affray he would come to him and magnanimously extend to him the hand of reconciliation in honor of the wound which he should receive. The high-shouldered Zerkov, well known to the Pavlograd boys, having not long since been in their regiment, came riding up to the regimental commander. Zerkov, after his dismissal from the general staff, had not remained in the regiment, saying that he was not such a fool as to put on the tugging collar in the ranks, when, by serving on the staff and having nothing to do, he could gain greater rewards. And so he had succeeded in getting himself appointed as special orderly to Prince Bagration. He now came to his former chief with a message from the commander of the rearguard. Colonel, said he, with his most melancholy assumption of gravity, turning to Rostov's opponent and glancing at his comrades, you are ordered to halt and burn the bridge. Who orders it? asked the colonel testily. Well, I don't know, colonel, who orders it, replied the cornet gravely, but the prince said to me, go and tell the colonel that the hussars are to return as quickly as possible and burn the bridge. Immediately after Zerkov, an officer of the suite rode up to the colonel of the hussars with the same order, and immediately after the officer of the suite came the stout Nesvitsky galloping up with all his might on his Cossack's horse, which could hardly carry him. "'How is it, Colonel?' he cried, while still at a distance. "'I told you to burn the bridge, but now someone has mistaken the order. Everybody here has lost his wits, and there's nothing done right.' The Colonel took his time in halting the regiment, and turned to Nesvitsky. "'You told me to burn up the combustibles,' said he, but as to burning that, you did not say a word. "'What's that, Batyushka?' exclaimed Nesvitsky, reining in his horse, taking off his cap, and with his fat hand brushing back his hair, dripping with perspiration. "'How's that? Didn't I say that the bridge was to be burned when you burned all the combustibles?' "'I won't be called Batyushka by you, Mr. Staff Officer, and you did not tell me to burn the bridge. I know my duties,' and I am accustomed faithfully to carry out what I am commanded to do. You said the bridge was to be burned, but who was to do it, the Holy Ghost could not tell me. Well, that's always the way, cried Nesvitsky, with a wave of the hand. What are you doing here? he asked, turning to Zerkov. Exactly the same thing as you are. But how wet you are! Let me wring you out. You said, Mr. Staff Officer, proceeded the Colonel in an offended tone. Colonel! interrupted the officer from the suite. You must make haste, or else the enemy will be pouring grape-shot into us. The colonel silently looked at the officer from the suite, at stout Prince Nesvitsky, and at Zerkov, and frowned. I will burn the bridge, he said in a solemn voice, as though to express by it that in spite of all the disagreeable things that happened to him, he was always prepared to do his duty. Spurring his horse with his long, muscular legs, as though the animal were to blame for everything, the colonel started forward and ordered the second squadron, in which Rostov served, to return, under the command of Denisov, and burn the bridge. Well, that's the way it is, said Rostov to himself. He wants to try me. 
His heart beat and the blood rushed to his face. Let him see if I am a coward, he thought. Once more, over all the happy faces of the men in the squadron, appeared that same serious line which they had worn at the time they were under fire. Rostov, not taking his eyes from his opponent, the regimental commander, tried to discover in his face a confirmation of his suspicions. But the colonel did not look at Rostov, but as usual gazed sternly and solemnly along the line. The word of command was heard. "'Lively! Lively!' cried voices around him. With their sabres catching in the reins, with rattling spurs, the hussars dismounted in all haste, not knowing what they were to do. They crossed themselves. Rostov now looked no more at the colonel. He had no time. He was afraid, afraid with a real sinking of the heart, that he should be left behind. His hand trembled as he turned his horse over to the groom, and he felt how the blood was rushing back to his heart. Denisov, on his way back, shouted something to him as he passed. Rostov saw nothing except the hussars running by his side, impeded by their spurs and with rattling sabres. "'The stretchers!' cried some voice behind him. But Rostov did not stop to think what that demand for stretchers meant. He ran on, striving only to be in advance of the others, but at the bridge he failed to look where he was going, and slipping in the slimy, sheeted mud, stumbled and fell upon his hands. The others dashed ahead of him. "'At both sides, Captain,' shouted the colonel, who, having ridden ahead, had reined his horse not far from the bridge, and sat looking on with a triumphant and radiant expression. Rostov, wiping his soiled hands on his riding trousers, glanced at his opponent and determined to go on, thinking that the further forward he went, the better it would be. But Bogdanuitch, without looking at him, or even noticing that it was Rostov, cried to him, "'Who is that in the middle of the bridge? Take the right side. Younger, come back!' he shouted testily, and then turned to Denisov, who, making a show of his foolhardiness, was riding upon the bridge. "'Why run such risks, Captain? You better dismount!' cried the captain. "'Ha! He always finds someone in fault,' replied Vaska Denisov, turning in his saddle. Meantime, Nesvitsky, Zerkov, and the staff officer stood in a little group, out of range, and watched the now little band of hussars in yellow shakos, dark green turnabouts, embroidered with gold lace and blue trousers, who were swarming over the bridge, and now, in the other direction, looked at the blue capotes marching down from the distant hill, and the groups with horses, which could easily be recognized as field pieces. Will they get the bridge burnt or not? Who is ahead? Will they have time to set the bridge on fire before the French turn grape on them and drive them back? Such questions as these, every man in the great band of soldiers that were stationed near the bridge involuntarily asked himself as he looked at that bright afternoon, at the bridge, and at the hussars, and then again, on the other side, at the bluecoats approaching with bayonets and field-pieces. "'Ooh, the hussars will catch it!' exclaimed Nesvitsky. "'They're within range of grape now.' "'It was useless to send so many men,' said the staff officer. "'That's a fact,' returned Nesvitsky. "'If he'd only sent two smart young fellows, it would have been just as well.' "'Ugh, your illustriousness!' remarked Zerkov, not taking his eyes from the hussars, but still speaking in his own peculiar fashion, which left it in doubt whether he was serious or in earnest. "'Ach, your illustriousness, how can you think so? The idea of sending two men. How then would we get the Vladimir and the ribbon? Supposing they do have a little thrashing, 
then there'll be a chance for the colonel to report the squadron and get a ribbon for himself our bogdanuitch knows a thing or two now there said the staff officer that means grape he pointed at the french field pieces which they were unlimbering and bringing into range in the direction of the french from the groups which had been recognized as the artillery they saw a puff of smoke arise then a second a third almost simultaneously and by the time the report of the first had reached their ears a fourth puff arose two reports one after another and then a third oh ugh groaned nesvitsky as though from excruciating agony and seizing the staff officer's arm look one fell fell one fell two i should think if i were tsar there should be no more war said nesvitsky turning away the french guns were again quickly loaded the infantry in the blue capotes came dashing at double quick toward the bridge again at different distances puffs of smoke appeared and the grape pattered and rattled on the bridge but this time nesvitsky could not see what took place on it a thick smoke poured up from it the hussars had succeeded in setting fire to it and the french field pieces were fired at it not indeed to prevent it but because they were loaded and there was nothing else to shoot at the french had succeeded in sending three charges of grape before the hussars returned to their grooms two of the volleys had been wildly aimed and the grape had gone afield but the last discharge struck in the middle of the group and hit three hussars rostof preoccupied by his relations with bogdanuitch remained on the bridge not knowing what he had to do there was no one to cut down he had always imagined a battle to consist of cutting down and he could not help set fire to the bridge either because he had not provided himself with wisps of straw as the others had he was standing there and looking on when suddenly there was a rattling on the bridge as though someone had been scattering hazelnuts and one of the hussars who happened to be nearest to him fell against the parapet with a groan rostof and several others ran to him again there was a cry for stretchers four men grasped the wounded hussar and started to bear him away oh let me alone for christ's sake shrieked the wounded man but nevertheless they took him and bore him off nikolai rostov turned away and as though he were searching for something began to gaze into the distance at the water of the danube at the sky at the sun how beautiful the sky seemed how blue how calm how profound how bright and magnificent the sinking sun how carelessly brilliant the waters of the distant danube gleamed and still more lovely were the far purpling mountains beyond the danube the monastery the mysterious defiles the pine forests veiled to the top in a transparent mist there it was full of peace and happiness i should wish for nothing wish for nothing for nothing in the world if only i were there thought rostof how much happiness i might have there in this sunshine while here groans suffering terror and confusion and hurry there again someone shrieks and here we are all running for our lives and i am running with the rest and here it is here is death all above me and around me a moment and perhaps never again shall i see the sun this river those defiles at that instant the sun went into a cloud rostof saw several stretchers being carried before him and the terror of death and of the stretchers and love for the sun and for life 
all mingled in one painfully disturbing impression. O Lord God, Thou who art there in yonder heaven, save, pardon, and defend me, whispered Rostov in his heart. The hussars hastened back to their grooms. Their voices grew louder and more confident. The stretchers were now out of their sight. Well, brother, so you smelt powder, rang Baska Denisov's voice in his ear. It's all over, but I am a coward. Yes, I am a coward, thought Rostov, and with a heavy sigh he took the bridle from the hands of his groom and mounted his grechik, which was waiting for him. What was that? Grapeshot? asked he of Denisov. That's just what it was, shouted Denisov. We worked like heroes, and it was waskily work. A charge is wear sport, and you hewn down the dogs. But here, the devil only knows what it is. They shoot at you as though you were a target. And Denisov rode off and joined the colonel, Nesvitsky, Zerkov, and the staff officers, who were talking together a short distance from Rostov. One thing's evident. No one noticed it, thought Rostov. And in truth, no one had noticed it, because each and every one shared in the sensation which the Junker experienced at being under fire for the first time. We shall have a splendid report sent, Zerkov was saying. Do you know they may give me a lieutenancy? Inform the prince that I burned the bridge, said the colonel, with a gay and triumphant expression. But suppose it is asked about our loss. A mere trifle, said the colonel, in his deepest tones. Two hussars wounded and one finished, said he, with apparent joy, and scarcely refraining from a contented smile, as he brought out with ringing emphasis the happy phrase, finished. End of chapter 8